Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I was just drawn in and then you can't stop thinking about something and then you have to do something about it. And eventually, like several years later, here comes your, you know, and then you write it a million times. And then the book comes out. And then it's only at that point where you realize why you even started. Welcome to episode 59 of the Adventure Podcast and the first episode of season four. This episode features Ed Caesar an author and journalist who has covered subjects as wide and varied as gorillas in the Congo, imprisoned Russian billionaires, and the world's longest tennis match. Ed introduces himself, so I'll leave the bulk of that to him. I will just quickly mention that this episode is recorded via an online recording, so the audio quality is not the same as when we record in person, which I hope we go back to doing as soon as we can. You also get the classic kitchen table recording dishwasher beeping, etc. But many of us are getting pretty used to that these days. Okay, over to Ed Caesar. I mean, let's just carry on from where we were going just there. You know, where are you? What's life like? And what are you doing? Uh, I am sitting in my kitchen in uh, South Manchester. I'm looking at a snowman melting in my garden um, that my kids made a couple of days ago. Uh, what else is going on? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm attempting to work on New Yorker stories from here um, with some difficulty because I can't go anywhere. So all I do is call people. Um, and so I think, yeah, all the normal you know, appeal of the job, not all of it, but some of the appeal of the job has gone away because the exciting thing is to understand the world as other people see it. So it's like this act of empathy where you get out into the world and you try and understand how it is that someone else views it. and travel is a big part of that like you go and physically see it from where they are you go and look them in the eye physically you see you know new places or interesting places you know stories are stories so you can tell them electronically and you can talk to people digitally and there are amazing things that are happening because of that possibilities but i'm missing all the analog uh, joy, the glory of this job, which is kind of why I got into it in the first place. 
Yeah, and we're diving in straight at the deep end here, which, you know, <laughs> fine. But something that's only occurred to me in the past few weeks is, do you think that we risk this becoming a permanent norm where editors, clients, brands, whoever, aren't willing to pay for the flight to, you know, Kosovo, etc., because Zoom exists? I think it's possible for uh, some publications or some you know, organizations would would see a lot of potential in this. And there's definitely an environmental aspect to this, which is hard to ignore, which is that, you know, there were a lot of businessmen going on absolutely unimportant boondoggles to um, wherever to meet someone for 20 minutes, at a kind of unacceptable level of CO2 emission. So I, I do see the world changing from that respect. Um, I think certainly in my magazine, like they can't wait to get us out on the road again because they see what happens to stories. So much harder to do stories with life in them. Um, it's not to say that those stories are not being written, but you know, in America right now, you can travel around a bit. There's an incredible piece that my friend Luke Mogelson wrote where he was with the people that stormed the Capitol in Washington you know, he was wearing his mask and he was with them. And it's just this incredible bit of first-hand reportage. I can't do that at the moment because, you know, there's nothing, I can't get out of my house. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's hard to be a responsible citizen and to be in the world in Britain where it's impossible. So um, I'm looking forward to getting back out of the road. And I think, you know, my editors certainly are keen for me to do it. I'm planning on being like um, both socially and professionally uh, being like one of those berserkers, you know, who raided sort of Northumbrian villages. It's um, like kind of tops off, weighed in, like, you know, you're just not going to see me for about a year. I think that's it. Uh, yeah, a lot of us are keen for that. I'm about to become a dad for the first time in a week. Wow. So I'm desperate to. Well, thanks. But I'm about to, I'm like so desperate to get out on expedition and go and explore, but it's just not going to happen. Your lockdown is um, entirely self-imposed. Yes, that's fair. I'm responsible. Yeah. So I guess it's probably a good idea to ask specifically what you do and where all that comes from. So I write nonfiction. Um, I'm a writer for the New Yorker magazine. Uh, I also write books, and my latest book, The Moth of the Mountain, came out in November in America and in the UK, uh, and that tells the story of Morris Wilson, who was a war veteran, uh, seeker, eccentric, um, wildly courageous, mad uh, Yorkshireman who attempted to climb Everest on his own in the early 30s and also attempted to do it in an extraordinary way by flying a biplane from London to the Himalayas, crash landing near uh, base camp and then climbing to the top of Everest. So it's the story of his attempt to climb Everest and it's also a story of the things that drove him there. Um, So I write books and then I write pieces about kind of wild variety of things. You know, my last few things have been about 
attracts the world's biggest diamond, uh, rough diamond from Botswana to Antwerp to, you know, the houses of London and Paris, um, which is super fun. I did a story about this group of wild kind of techno anarchists who'd set up a server empire for the dark web in a disused Cold War bunker in Germany. Um, and they housed all of the world's worst dark web sites. They hosted them there amongst doing other various kind of nefarious things. So, and that was super fun. So I tend to work on like, uh, sort of wide scope nonfiction for the New Yorker, and then like every four or five years, I try and write a book. Wow, it's—I uh, <laughs> don't know—it appeals to me in a way that you know not many people's careers do actually. But yeah, there's so many places I could go with this. Um, where did it all begin? Um, what my career. Yeah, and your yeah. and and your interest in I guess the world and exploring it and understanding it. Yeah. Um, well, the first thing is that I think I always wanted to be a writer. Really, really early on in my life, like even I don't think it's precocious to say, but like seven, eight, nine, I definitely thought of myself as someone who is good at describing what was happening. So, um, you know, you know, and writing just felt, I never thought about doing anything else. I never had like dreams to be like a doctor or an astronaut or anything. I didn't know what really what career meant or, but like, it was clear to me, like, and especially as a teenager, like it was definitely the thing that I was, I was good at. And the thing that lit me up. And so I was very lucky in that way in that I just, knew the thing that I wanted to do. Um, this specific type of writing, I kind of took a circuitous route to because um, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do when I left university. And uh, I sort of thought maybe it's films or maybe it's, you know, so I, I did that for a bit, um, tried to write screenplays and I read other people's screenplays for money and did reports for film studios. Um, and then I just couldn't really see that that was going anywhere and I wasn't very good at it. And uh, I thought I just need a way to write for money. And as mad as it sounds, in 2004, like journalism was the answer. <laughs> you know, I was like, who gets paid to write? Journalists get paid to write. Okay, so I got some work experience um, at The Independent and just through huge good fortune, someone was away. I got to write a couple of things and the editor liked, you know, what I did, even though I had no journalistic experience and I was kept on as a sort of freelancer, but in the office, so like I would do weird odd jobs, like, you know, help lay out the chess page or whatever, or, you know, for nothing. And I got, put and the, I got paid for anything that went in the paper, which was not very much. So like I was just, scrapping to get anything that I could in the paper but it was a really good experience and I just became a feature writer that way like eventually I got given a go on some features and um I was I mean the whole thing is a you know series of happy you know bits of luck 
And I had just these amazing editors on that desk, the features desk at The Independent, who read American magazines, which I'd never heard of. So like The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, New York Times Magazine, who did these wildly ambitious, uh, really deeply reported pieces. And they used to just kind of push them across the desk at me, going, read this, read this, read this, read this. And I became totally hooked on this stuff. You know, I didn't have anyone who was a journalist in my family. Like, I'd never, ever read any of those magazines or really thought about any of that stuff before I got that job. And at a certain point, while I was at The Independent in my mid-20s, I thought to myself, well, actually, that's what I want to do. There was this piece by Sebastian Junger called Blood Oil, for Vanity Fair, and he goes on a boat up the Niger Delta to meet a group of rebels who are holding this oil pipeline, basically to ransom. And I was like, this is unbelievably cool. Like, he was working, you know, it was a really kind of brilliantly reported piece, but it was also just like a balls-out brave. It was really exciting. You know, he'd got on the boat with his photographer, with this group of terrifying looking dudes with automatic weapons. And I just, there was something that appealed to me about seeing the world and and trying to kind of tell all these crazy stories that existed. And so I just made it my business to to try and do that kind of work. Um, Very difficult to do it in the UK, or to make a career of it in the UK. Like the only places that really were doing it were American magazines, were doing it in a way that you could live, you know, because the the fees and stuff. And so I made my way kind of bit by bit to America. Um, firstly, the New York Times magazine and then the New Yorker to cut, you know, about a decade of my life short. But that's broadly what happened. You know, like I just started doing more and more ambitious stuff wherever I could to try and get my clips better that I could show to people. So I went and covered, you know, lots of crazy stuff, like quite a lot of stuff in Africa. Like I covered conflict in Congo and Central African Republic. Like I, you know, hung out with um, Al-Shabaab um, on the Somali border. Uh, I did... But I also just did cool stuff that was kind of ambitious in a different way. Like I told the story of the world's longest tennis match, Isna Mahut in Wimbledon in the first round, which went on for three days. And, you know, that was almost more fun than anything. You know, just just trying to find stories that felt like, um, I guess, just wide in scope, that they told you something that you wouldn't know if you were just reading the news every day or whatever. So whether that was travel or something about the experience itself. Yeah, so all of, so all of that, that's what I did. And then I eventually got to the American Mags and started doing the same work for them. And, you know, eventually, finally got to like the New Yorker, which has always been the place where I'd wanted to get to from the start. And they, you know, they let you do this cool stuff all the time. So that's basically how it started. Hey, that's amazing. And so what was the first 
big trip or the first trip where you thought, okay, I'm doing a Sebastian Junger, you know, I'm going out there and I'm crossing yeah. the line? There was a couple actually, like when I was, um, when I was still at the Independent, um, so the Independent didn't have a big budget, but they could see that I was ambitious. And I think I probably told them like, this is the kind of stuff I want to do. And so they tried to help me like in whatever way they could. And the, so there were two, there were two reporting trips that really stood out. There was one where I went to Congo Brazzaville. Um, there was a program to rehabituate um, uh, gorillas, like gorillas who had been orphaned because of the bushmeat trade. And they were then taken into, you know, basically captivity, but then re- rehabituated in with other lowland gorillas. And I was going to go and see some of these gorillas basically thriving in the wild. And that is a mad trip. Um, like if you haven't done a lot of travel, a lot of adventurous travel, you know, it was, you know, London to Addis, like our, you know, our connected flight, we missed it. So it was like, you have to wait three days in Addis Ababa, which is kind of a fascinating city anyway, which I'd returned to a few times in, you know, after that. And then got on a flight to Kinshasa, Kinshasa to, and then Kinshasa, you kind of go over the Congo River into Brazzaville. I remember it was just, it was just coming up to, to Christmas and I was on this flight and no music had been playing at all on this flight from Addis to Kinshasa. And there was almost like some, some kind of weird riot almost at Kinshasa, like because people couldn't get off the plane in time or something. There was some like kerfuffle, which I didn't quite get my head around. And then on the final leg of the flight, which is only like five or 10 minutes, just like across the river, they played three times in a row, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. <laughs> and I was like, why, why is this happening? It was like, it was always played to like placate, like people were like, you know, tensions were running high. And <laughs> so they played Mariah Carey. Anyway, so in, in, I mean, there were so many weird things about this trip, but in Brazzaville, the I don't think the conveyor belt on the um, on the luggage retrieval system had worked for about twenty years. It was just this clapped out thing. And I remember before I went, someone telling me what you need is um, your fixer is going to help you get through the airport because it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a nightmare otherwise. So I was like, okay, fixer's going to help me get through, and. Uh, the fixer came and met me and you go through and you show your immunization passport and everything. And then the fixer started looking around at this group of burly young men who were standing near the luggage thing. And I said, what's going on here? Like, so where are the bags? They go, yeah, the bags don't come out here. What you do is you pick the strongest looking guy from here. We're going to pay him $2 and he's going to go and fight for your bags, right? So, like, I get, so I was like, well, how do they know it's mine? They said, well, you give them, you give them a description, and you give them the tags, and then, like, I saw the plane unload all of these bags onto the tarmac, boom, like that. And we'd picked, like, thankfully, like the best guy, the best guy in the airport, and he went and fought for our bags. 
But literally, just like when like scrapping with the others, like got them, brought them back. Okay, gave him his two dollars. Thanks very much. That was the luggage retrieval system. <laughs> Amazing. So I was like, okay, that's quite you know, that's you know, I was like kind of. Um, and the other thing, I mean, I don't want to spend too much time in Brazzaville, but the other really <laughs> crazy thing was we were bringing out um, some uniforms for the charity for the like conservation charity. They were all camouflage, you know, army fatigues. And our bags were searched when we were going, going out of the airport. And they opened up the bag. There were all these army fatigues. It's like, uh, are you mounting a coup? And we like had to like, <laughs> we had to smooth that one over. Anyway, that was an amazing trip. It was like 200 miles north of Brazzaville in the bush. You know, my first night there, just before we went out to see the gorillas for the first day, I went to, I went to, I said, like, where's, you know, where do you go if you need to go, right? And they said, the long drops out the back. I was like, okay. And they said, just take a torch and watch out for Abio. I was like, who is Abio? And they said, Abio is the hippo that lives, like, just down there. And he's fucking nasty. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was like, I think I'll wait. I just wait till the morning. It's like I'd rather approach a hippo, an angry hippo, you know, when it's daylight. I think I'll just whatever, like, can wait. Um, so anyway, that was an amazing trip, and like, I don't think I wrote a great story, but it was, you know, it was just, you know, it felt adventurous. It was. I remember that feeling of driving in the night on our return back into Brazzaville and like stopping for fruit on the side of the road. Um, and there being kids reading their school books under a streetlight and thinking just what, I don't know, all these little details about just people living in a way that's completely alien to you and, you know, we're the same, but we're so different. Everyone wants to get educated. Um, I don't know. There were just so many things about that trip that were incredible to me and then the the second kind of eye-opener was um Mikhail Khodorkovsky was the world's rich uh, Russia's richest man um and he'd been imprisoned by Putin for basically becoming too political so he'd been sent to the gulag in Siberia and his family went out to see him once every three or four months and so I asked if I could tag along on one of those trips. Like, so I wasn't allowed into the prison itself, but I could go when his family were going. You could kind of prime his family with questions. You could do this story about, like, you know, Russia's richest man languishing in a jail. Um, and this is a very obvious thing to say, but Russia is massive. And I remember getting on, you know, I got to Moscow. And then I got on Aeroflot out to Cheetah. It was a seven-hour flight or something from Moscow east to this place, just north of the Chinese border uh, on the eastern side of Lake Baikal. That kind of blew my mind, the fact that you could fly within the country so far. And the plane was so old, like stank of fags. Everyone was drinking heavily, like from duty-free bottles on the thing. The, I remember just before landing, thinking my seat felt 
just not quite right, you know, a bit loose or rickety or something. So I swapped into the one next to it. And as we landed, the seat that I had been in totally collapsed and lurched into the one in front. And <laughs> I was thinking, okay, I think I just, <laughs> I think I just dodged a bullet there. Um, I mean, and when I remarked on this to the air hostess, she goes, yeah, some of them aren't great, you know, whatever. And I was like, okay, like I didn't really have time to deal with it. Um, and the way that you got out to, the way that you got to Krasnokarmensk, which was this town in where the prison was, was either you took a train for 15 hours or you took a taxi for 12 hours. Like it was 12 hours in a car, it was 15 hours on the train. And uh, we had kind of missed, the train only went every couple of days. So we sort of missed our opportunity to get on the train. So we had to get a taxi. And I was with this young Russian woman who was translating for me. So she, she couldn't find anyone who'd take us 12 hours. And eventually we found this guy who was hammered. And he had like bottle scars in the back of his neck. And... Um, and he agreed to take us for a certain amount of money. And I was like, is this okay? He's like, and she was like, do you want to stay here? Or do you want to go? Or do you want to go? I was like, okay, well, let's go. And um, his car broke down about an hour outside of um, outside of Cheetah. And he left us on the side of the road and took a, he hitched a ride back to Cheetah. He left his, he left his car there which was this clapped out car. And he left us on the side of the road, just like in Siberia. <laughs> so now we're, now we have to, to, you know, like thumb a ride effect. We still got 11 hours to go. It took us like two hours and eventually someone stopped for us, this army, this Russian army um, officer. And he wasn't driving there, but we paid him an absolute ton of money and he drove us the rest of the way. I remember thinking on that, first of all, like the, you know, the Siberian steppe is so vast and like you could almost see the curvature of the earth, you know, that sense of being in total wilderness was incredible. I remember st- like we stopped at these little roadside shacks to um, to get pierogi, you know, like this. And the, the food was almost Chinese. It was almost like dim sum you could see Buddhist flags up everywhere. I was thinking, well, how long is this going to be Russian? It just felt Chinese. You know, there's no one there. Everyone looks kind of pretty much like they're Chinese or, you know, and I think that was the first, that was the first time I ever saw on that trip. That was the first time I ever saw a freshly killed person, like someone who just died. There was a car crash, you know, and as the car flipped over just in front of us, I saw this man like out, you know, just, you know, dead on the side of the road. And his person he'd been traveling with was standing, smoking a cigarette by the car. And we stopped and said, is there anything we can do? And the guy just shook his head and said, no. And like, we just drove on. And I remember feeling that sense of kind of desolation, like such a hard it's such a hard place to live and this is all before like I'd even done any of my story you know got to the prison met the family you know the adventure to get there was crazy anyway it did not make me want to stop doing that kind of work it made me think 
like this is incredible. Um, I did get to a point, I think I got to a point where like the adventures that I wanted to go on was less risky, um, which was broadly when I had children. Right, so about 18 months after my first child was born, when Rory was born, um, uh, I was in Central African Republic covering a civil war there. Really nasty. Like, the, I, mean, I think probably the worst stuff I've ever seen. And on my first day there, um, you know, someone like this kid shot at me two or three times. Um, you know, it's kind of duck behind a car. Uh, we saw two people getting lynched. We rescued a turtle, which was this random thing from a group of, um, uh, from a Muslim family who were fleeing like a, you know, Christian mob. And we saw all this like horrific, you know, fighting, the aftermath of it. And that night I remember sitting in this kind of house, which I was sharing with these French journalists, thinking, what am I doing? Like, this is bananas. This is not worth it. <laughs> like, the story is worth it. I just don't think it's me. Like, I don't think I should be doing this anymore. I just think it's really unfair. Um, so I think I recalibrated. I think specifically on that day, I recalibrated my attitude towards risk. Not that I didn't want to take any, but that I thought taking almost pointless risk there was no reason there's no reason for me to be close enough to a teenage gunman that he's taking a shot at me you know all that kind of stuff felt stupid at that point anyway i do th- i mean but i think it, i suppose one of the things that's doing the job for a while it does make you think about risk and it's probably probably fed into my interest in Morris Wilson and what he was prepared to do and why he was like his, the risks that he took were kind of extraordinary. Yeah. And I think, you know, I definitely like to talk about Morris. Um, but were, were, were you doing the stories for you or were you doing them because you felt like they needed to be told and heard? Well, both, I think. Yeah. Both. I mean, it's... um, I really, really like doing the work. There is something about seeing something that you've never seen before that translates into the power of the description. It's like you get new colours or something. You know, you suddenly discover all these new shades. You see something that you've never seen before. You try and find a way to describe it. So you're exercising that muscle. So it was interesting as a writer to do that. So that is for me. But it's also, um, you know, things like uh, Central African Republic. Nobody in the British press, hardly anyone. That's probably not quite fair. Hardly anyone in the British press was reporting on a conflict that was absolutely horrific. Like Rwanda levels of horrific, not the same numbers, but appalling, like uh, ethnic cleansing or I guess sectarian cleansing. And it was, you know, I felt 
you feel that urge. Someone, you know, a friend of mine was out there reporting on it for Al Jazeera. And I sort of felt like I could do it and I should do it. And so, like, why not? Um, So it's partly for me. It's partly because you think the stories need to be told. It's partly because you think, like, what is it? You know, my job is not to be a news journalist, but it can be to bring new things into new things into people's lives. And there were a lot of people that read that story, which ended up, you know, it won a couple of awards and probably got a lot of readers, you know, because of that. And I feel like, well, that's that's a good thing because people then know about this conflict that they wouldn't have known about. So it's it's a complicated answer. It is selfish, but then all writing is to a certain extent to do with your personality and you're you're trying to project that into the world and then it's also it has this other function that's that is less selfish this is maybe an unfair question do you to what extent do you think having a child was an opportunity for you to you know you could use that as a vehicle or an excuse to stop doing that work or was that the reason um, no, I'd, do you know what the, the honest truth is that you just, I think, see things slightly differently. Like I always wanted children. So that's, you know, and my wife always wanted children. So like, if we could have them, then we were going to have them. So that wasn't, it wasn't useful. It was just something that was going to happen. Um, I think you just you you do calibrate things slightly differently. That, and that's just the truth. Like you, you think uh, you become, well, I hope I became less selfish because I had to be. Yeah. So, I mean, it's quite straightforward, really. Like someone else is depending on you. I could, you know, I mean, I would, you know, I would, you know, just to add in my case, like I knew what it was like to grow up without a father who died, like my dad died in an accident when I was two. He was a helicopter pilot. And so I had that, you know, I definitely didn't want to put my children through that. And um, what impact did that have on you? Well, it's probably shaped my whole life, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know what, I, it's hard to understand, you know, hard to know what you would have been like Without it, I did, you know, I wrote, it was interesting, in the aftermath of the book coming out, I wrote a piece about, a little bit about the kind of uh, psychological or, you know, sort of character forming elements of that tragedy. So my dad was out, He, you know, he was an incredible helicopter pilot. He used to lead the navy's um helicopter display team you know he'd been you know he was an instructor he was incredibly experienced and there was mechanical failure he was with another young pilot and he died um in this accident near aberdeen which is where we were living at the time and uh when i was growing up there was a picture of him in his naval uniform next to a framed photo of 
um, this poem called High Flight, which uh, is about the ecstasy of flying. It's written by uh, a 19-year-old American airman uh, called John McGee and who himself died in an accident a few months after writing the poem. So that poem was in its frame next to the picture of my dad. And like in our house, this great tragedy was sort of, it was there, but not there. You know, my mum was dealing with it. My older brothers were dealing with it. And no one ever really explained what's the relationship between this this set of words, oh, I've slipped the surly bonds of earth and danced the skies and laughed a silver wind. Somewhere I've climbed and joined the tumbling mirth and done a hundred things you have not dreamed of, wheeled and sword and spun. What's the, what's the relationship between that, that set of words and the picture of my dad? Um, but to me, it was obvious. It was like, you know, he's not here. And that's incredibly sad. But also the thing that killed him was also the thing that lit him up. That was the thing that made him who he was. So like at some level, I understood that complicated relationship between, you know, risk, joy, you know, um, that life isn't just about conserving yourself, that it's about trying to engage with it in some full way. And I think, you know, that has informed a lot of my interests and um, certainly my, my interest as a writer sometime you know fall into that area i am interested in endurance and i'm interested also in i think this is so my first book was about running but i was very interested by this thing that the kind of main character in my book joffrey mutai told me which was about this feeling that he gets sometimes when he's in absolute peak physical condition and he's running in a race and he feels like he's flying and he calls it the spirit you know he just you know it's there's no pain there's no there's a, there's only movement it's like flow or whatever sports psychologists would call it um jean bobet the the uh french cyclist of the 1950s used to call it la volupte which is like voluptuousness um and he's what the what's the description he gives it's like speed and ease force and grace so i'm interested in that because that's kind of what high flight's about that ecstasy of and freedom of movement somehow getting outside of your body through this kind of joyful experience and yes i mean so all of that i mean i think basically all of the major things that I've written have somehow been connected to that experience. Um, my dad died, but also growing up in a house where he wasn't chastised for doing something risky. He was just, that was, you took everything about him as part of the package. Are you happy being, I shouldn't say defined by that because you're not necessarily, but are you happy with that being such a, a major part of who you are now? I don't think you get to pick, do you? <laughs> I mean, uh, I don't. Yeah, I, mean, I just I think you know being a writer is 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 somewhere is 
both to describe the world, you know, externally, but also to somehow um, write about things that are meaningful to you. And that is meaningful to me. It's not the only thing, but it's, it is something that is. Um, I was reading this, uh, Martin Amos's first memoir experience, and he said, and he has this great line in it, you don't write about your themes, you write around them. And that is true. Like somehow you approach subjects almost subconsciously without realizing why you're doing it. It took me writing my latest book to really understand why I'd written it. I just was totally gripped by the subject. And it's not that I thought, here's a thing that speaks to all my themes. I was just drawn in and then you can't stop thinking about something and then you have to do something about it. And eventually, like several years later, here comes your, you know, and then you write it a million times and then the book comes out. And then it's only at that point where you realise why you even started. It's quite a weird way to spend your life in this kind of cycle (laughs) of um, big projects, but not without um, its consolations. Were you aware that that was the process you were going through and you just embraced it or is that a new lesson? No, I just think you go, I I just think you have to, um, yeah, you just have to swim with it a bit and, you have to do if you're going to spend several years books take me a long time because i go very deep in the research and then i often don't write it quite how it needs to be written the first time around because i don't write in a very straightforward way you know i want to approach it from several different angles and whatever they take a long time and if you're going to spend a long time doing something you've got to know at some level, that it's worth it. And I, ne- I never had a moment's doubt about either of my books, actually, that they were really meaningful to me and worth it. And so that's all you need to know to start with. Do you want to spend time with this person or with this subject? And then when it's finished, you can work out what it's all about. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. How much do you care whether or not they're commercially successful? Uh, I do care, yeah. I do care. Um, I mean, two hours wasn't wildly successful my first book but I keep meeting especially I keep meeting runners who've read it Um, and it also allowed me to do some really fun stuff after the book came out to do with people trying to break two hours and 
I got to do really fun stories because of that. And I don't regret it for a second. It was incredible. It's an incredible experience reporting and writing it. It's been, you know, I'm proud of the book. The Moth has been just, you know, extraordinary because so many people have read it now. Like it went into its fifth printing, you know, it came out in November. It went into its fifth printing in the UK before Christmas. Like it was just, you know, like loads of people bought it. I get, uh, you know, 10 emails or something, you know, most days from people who've read it, engaged with it. So it's like, it's connecting. Yeah, it's connecting with people. And it's, you know, this did not happen with two hours. Like nothing like this happened with two hours. And it's, so it is connecting with people. I think it's, I mean, we can perhaps talk about this, but like, I think it's connecting because it's at some level about escape and we're all trapped. Like I didn't plan for it to come out in a pandemic, but here we are. And it's about escape in one fundamental way. It's about like trying to get outside of the circumstances of your own life and do something exuberant and theatrical and crazy. And I think a lot of people relate to that. I think you're probably right. Yeah. God. Okay. Well, I mean, it might be worth, if you're up for it, just talking a little bit about that story and what it was that grabbed you and inspired you. Yeah, I first read about Maurice Wilson in a brilliant book that I would recommend to anyone who listens to this called Into the Silence by Wade Davis. Into the Silence is about the... Uh, three Everest expeditions of the 1920s and about the men who took part in those expeditions. It's like a group biography and also a brilliant adventure story of those people. It uh, it won a ton of prizes deservedly. It's just a magnificent bit of research and writing. And there was a section about what's the First World War had done to uh, one of the climbers. And there was a little moment where Maurice Wilson appears as a kind of, you know, two paragraphs. You know, in 1933, Maurice Wilson. And it's the first time I'd ever heard about the story, about this guy that tried to fly and then climb Everest on his own with no flying or climbing experience. And it just lodged in my brain. I read that book in 2011. And, you know, I then read everything else that's been written about him. And sort of, you know, I wasn't thinking of it as a book at that point, but I was just wanted to know more. And sometimes uh, I would wake up in the night thinking about Morris Wilson, <laughs> which is kind of a weird thing, but I, I would... I just became very intrigued. And and the, the biggest thing that made me want to write the book, actually, is there was this, the one sort of solid piece of work on him is this book called I'll Climb Mount Everest Alone, which was written in 1957 by a journalist called Dennis Roberts. And I hope, you know, Dennis Roberts's family are not listening to this, but it's not good. The book is not good because... 
it's quite, uh, let's just say this charitably, but like, I feel like even given the restrictions of research at the time, he did not do right by Morris Wilson. Like he never talked to anyone in his family who would have talked to him. I know that for a fact. He relied quite heavily on this couple, the Evanses, with whom Morris was in kind of weird menage a trois type situation. And who's, you know, so he came to a deal that he could read the letters without saying there were letters between Enid and Wilson. There's just a lot of stuff that was weird about it. However, it was not... So I thought, well, there must be more to the story than that. Um, there was a bit about the First World War, and, and, and in Roberts's book it says, the First World War affected Wilson no more and no less than any other sensitive young man. And that's it. His whole, you know... And because he, because Roberts hadn't spoken to the family, they didn't know that uh, you know Wilson had suffered, and his brother was a you know shivering wreck because of the First World War. They didn't know that um, they got you know his actual wartime service wrong. Like he just didn't fight where Roberts said he did. The actual details of what Wilson did on the day that he did it was so extraordinary. When I actually kind of ferreted out the truth of it by going through all the army archives and reading his commanding officer's diary and all that stuff. I was like, well, if you'd known this, then you couldn't have said that. If you you do the first thing, then you can't can't come to that conclusion. And also when you read Wilson's diary from on his way to Everest, you know, he's still thinking about the war 16 years later. It's, It's always in his thoughts. When he sees Everest, he thinks of going into the front line. Yeah, so I just, anyway, it made me think that it was quite freeing in a way because I thought, well, I just know that I can do a better job if I actually apply myself to the story, that there's much more to be said. There's a richer, more interesting tale to be told about this man who was, who had been largely because of that book consigned to the footnotes of Everest history as an eccentric and a crank. Um, and who I thought, and I thought his story probably told a much deeper, you know, communicated deeper truths about trauma, about what we do with, you know, pain and and how we express ourselves through these demented, you know, sure to fail acts of self-harm. There's a kind of theatricality to the whole thing that was really interesting to me. So yeah, that's how I came to to you know know that I could write it. And then I spent a lot of time tracking down letters and looking at ships' manifests from you know Mozambique or Vancouver or whatever, <laughs> looking at border records and uh, you know being in the National Archives and just generally doing my detective work. Is all of that detective work as romantic and exciting as it sounds? Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's really frustrating. Why so? Because you're... Because so much of it is failure. 
I mean, you haven't known true mania until you've not only searched in every single ship's manifest for every single liner company out of Southampton, not only for Morris Wilson as he is spelt, but for him spelt wrongly. You know, that. I mean, it's a lot of work. And then eventually, ta-da, you know, I found this, um, you know, you'd find these nuggets of gold. I was like, wow, Wilson went to South Africa, spelt wrongly, but it's definitely him because it's his home address. And he's with a woman who I didn't know about because he must be because it's this, he gets on the same ship from Mozambique on the way back. And there's just no way that two people could... I mean, there is a way that it could be a coincidence, but it's so vanishingly small that it's a coincidence. That you, So you stumble across that, that stuff and it's joyous, but you've spent you know, maybe a week looking through largely digital, digitized records, going mad, thinking like, this is an insane waste of my life. Like I've just spent a week in my office getting nowhere. But um, yeah, it is, it's kind of, it's great when it comes off and I'm very glad that I did it because the thing that you need to do is to feel like you've left no stone unturned. Do do, do you need to feel like that or does that matter to the journalism? Um, Both, I don't know. I just would feel so naked if I wrote it having not turned every page I think that's the thing I would feel very I would feel like I hadn't done my job do you consider yourself obsessive Uh, I can be yeah on the right (laughs) on the right subject I don't think I am generally Um, I don't know I feel like um, I just take a lot of pride in the work and I think that readers can tell when you're fudging. Definitely. Even if it's not all on the page, like people can sense when they're reading the top of the iceberg and there's this other iceberg of work that, you know, below the water that's unseen. And they can tell when someone is just winging it. I mean, it's it's just, I, I can tell when I'm reading when someone really knows their stuff and has turned every page. There's no, you know, there's no substitute for the work. I'm fascinated by how important the process is to you as a method of living your life rather than creating something that lasts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel a bit ambivalent about how... um, how in the weeds I get because you know big chunks of my life do go by and you only get so many you know you only get so long so like there is a school of thought would say like if you were slightly less um you know obsessive or whatever you could do more of these things then you'd have more books and then you tell more stories and that would all be you know that would be better I know my wife sometimes thinks like, I wish it didn't take you <laughs> so long to do everything. I don't know. I can't really change. 
uh, I don't think I'm going to change. I'm 40, you know, I don't think that's, I don't think I'm likely to change now. Yeah. Why do these stories matter in the grand scheme? Um, yeah, I don't know, actually. Uh, probably because um, like narratives help you understand the world. They don't teach you how to live, but they help you understand the world. And I think really, really good nonfiction storytelling is as powerful as any, as anything. Like this idea that um, only fiction can reveal these like deep truths, you know. Just don't think that's true. I think nonfiction gets a slightly rough deal when it comes to where it's positioned in the kind of pecking order of of um, you know the arts. You know, you'd say a great novelist would be, you know, they kind of work these miracles. Well, I, you know, there are a few nonfiction writers that I would think have done the same for me. It's not just about conveying facts. It's 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 this profound act of empathy. Like I said at the beginning, it's you have to. It's an act of the imagination to write about Morris Wilson. One of the things that I kept going um, back to is how weird biography is. Like you pretend to understand what it was like to be someone else. And that is not, you, c- you can't do it. You could have every letter, diary entry. You could talk to them for 50 hours. You could talk to everyone who knew them. And there would still be some impenetrable, you know, kind of keep in the middle of their soul that you can't access. And also, so much of what we do is kind of banal, random, you know, domestic nonsense. You know, the amount of time I spend putting the bins out or whatever, like this is not a part of, I hope, would not be a part of a biography. But it is what you you do spend a lot of time putting the bins out. Anyway, my point is you can't, you sort of can't access the whole of somebody. It's always going to be a failure at some level, which is actually what makes it interesting because you realize that you can't tell the whole of somebody's life. You can only access certain parts of it. Yeah, I mean, of course. Do you think that the biographers of the future uh at an advantage or a disadvantage because everyone's putting everything on social media i don't think it's going to make it more interesting because the failure will still exist um i came to think i mean morris Wilson's a kind of special case because there are large parts of his life where he just disappears he's in new zealand for seven years about which I know not a huge amount. Like I know roughly what he did. I've got some records, there's some newspaper stuff. I know who he married. I know the ships he got on. I know what he did for work. But other than that, not a huge amount. Um, So you've got a choice as a biographer to write around that, to write through it. 
to make something of the gap. Um, I became quite interested. There's this J- Japanese ceramics um, kind of skill or, or art form called kintsugi, which is where they make, if there are cracks in plates, they make it beautiful with gold leaf. So like the, instead of hiding the crack, they touch it up in such a way as to draw attention to it, but with this gold paint. I saw it in, um, I saw an exhibition of it in the Manchester Art Gallery and it became quite a useful kind of touchstone for how I, was, how I, how I dealt with gaps in Wilson's story because I thought, well, there are just parts where however hard I worked, I could never know gone and so what are my choices now do i make it do i hide it do i highlight it and you know broadly the way that i've gone is kintsugi you know i've just applied a bit of you know the gold leaf to it that's a wonderful way to look at it i think okay um i guess we'll start to draw it to a close um yeah I have two two questions that I tend to always ask towards the end. Um, what worries you? Mm. Um, sorry, I just got distracted. A really nice finch, I think, just landed in a tree in my garden. Sorry. Um, what worries me? Uh... Well, I feel um, this is entirely selfish, but right now what is on my mind is I just need to um, go and listen to a lot of music with a lot of other people. Uh, And my worry is that somehow all of like some of these trends that have started because of the pandemic are going to become uh, more entrenched than people think they're going to be and that all of the things that kind of light me up you know like travel and live events and all that stuff is somehow going to become much harder um, so yeah like I have this kind of generalised anxiety at the moment about the things that I value most becoming less important um, I worry on a basic level about the health of my family. Like, that does worry me. Um, uh, what do I, I worry about my I, I sort of worry about my kids, not that they're going to turn out all right, but that they have, um, they have opportunities to thrive, basically. So, um, I don't know. Like when I when I was eighteen and nineteen, like I spent time just going on, first of all, on trains around Europe, and then on planes around, you know, Southeast Asia and Australia and New Zealand, and then I went to work in California for a bit, and I never had a credit card. I phoned home you know, once every three weeks. So I used to occasionally send an email. And I sort of slightly worried that 
because we all know where everyone is all the time and we need to feel safer and all that stuff, that they might not blossom or thrive as individuals in the same way that we're slightly cloistering children. That does, that's worries me a bit. I also have the other worry, which is that like, what kind of a nutcase sends their kid out into the world like that and that someone's going to do them over at some time. Anyway, I'm just, you know, yeah, those are normal things to worry about with your kids. I don't know. What else? Um, yeah, that's about it. Do you think you're content? Uh, yes. Um, in important ways. I do work that I love. I, you know, I've got a gorgeous family. Um, you would find me the most content, I think, after I'd just filed or just published a piece, probably about three or four days afterwards. It's really hard, especially at The New Yorker, it's really hard when you close a piece because you go through fact check for a long time. Then there's like all these rounds of edits and you get to a closing meeting and because it's in America, it often finishes really late. Um, and the whole thing is like profoundly stressful and you spend like two or three days recovering. But after that, you've got this piece out in the world and loads of people read it and you feel good. So, so you would find me at my most content about three or four days after that's happened. I would be, it would be like a hot July afternoon. I would be with my gang at Wally Range Cricket Club watching the mighty Wally Range Under Nines cricket team featuring uh, my firstborn playing, you know, playing cricket. There would be like, you know, it would be sunny. Everyone would, you know, be having beers out on the grass and like Annabelle would be running around with her mates. That would be basically it, like some kind of professional closure and some kind of chilled family, um, you know, scene. That's what that would be. Total contentment for me. Yeah, it doesn't sound too bad. It sounds all right, doesn't it? Okay, I have one last question because that was a cheat one. Um, <laughs> what gives you hope? Uh, do you know what? I keep reading incredible stuff by. Um, I just keep reading incredible things and that, so that makes me quite hopeful, you know, um, whatever happens in the world, people keep writing extraordinarily good things and responding to it intelligently and, you know, movingly. Um, I keep listening to brilliant music and all, uh, and all of that gives me enormous hope. I just think, People, you know, human beings are incredibly resilient. They find ways to move through crises to still keep creating. And um, specifically, actually, just in the just because you caught me right now, I watched this documentary called Amazing Grace, which was about the making of Amazing Grace, Aretha Franklin's gospel album, and. At the end of that, I mean, the whole thing is completely gripping. It's, t- it's one of the best things I've ever seen. Um, 
And at the end of it, she sings Never Grow Old. And the the lyrics of it, are, it's, a, it's like a, it's a gospel track, but it's like there's a place where we never grow old. She's talking about heaven. But the way that you access that is by dying, obviously. So the, the, there's all this kind of bittersweetness to the, even if you, you know, if you're religious, which I'm not, there's this bittersweetness to the, to the melody and the, and the, the meaning of the, the song. There's a place where we never grow old. And it's, um, I don't know, I just felt like the, the way that she sang it, the footage is incredible. Um, and I've just had it on repeats, like over and over, like in the last few days, the recording of it. So that kind of thing makes me profoundly hopeful, like really good music, writing, art, whatever. I feel like there's hope for all of us. Like you keep making something that totally takes me out of my body that can help you respond to your own circumstances in different ways. That's, that does make me hopeful. Nice. Cool. We'll leave it there. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk. You can buy Ed's new book, The Moth and the Mountain, at any good bookshop. The podcast is produced and distributed by Pip Saunders and Alex Hall and is released in association with Acast. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk and keep up to date on Instagram at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.